Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and this episode is going to be about conditioning combat to our advantage. Now, before we get into that, a few other things. One of the things that I've been seeing on TikTok, or rather that I've been being shown on TikTok because I am rarely on TikTok, is this, uh, these folks being like, uh, showing footage of people fighting or LARPing or whatever the case may be, and saying something along the lines of, why don't you go over to, like, the real battle and see what it's like? Uh, you know, that's nothing like real war. No duh. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that myself and everybody listening are fully aware that what we do is a game. Considering that what it is called is a war game. Not straight up war. Not straight up battle. It's a battle game, right? So, I mean... Obviously? I mean, I'm a bit extra, obviously, for going into these old military science books and trying to figure out how to apply them to our games. Games. But, you know, it, it's still just a game. We all understand that. And I, and I hope other people do, too. It's no more strange than going to a range and smacking a little ball with a stick and then chasing the little ball around 18 holes. Well, that's silly. You do it while wearing silly clothes. But... That's totally normal, right? People watch it on TV. Well, what we do in our silly clothes, same thing. So, yeah, glass houses and, and whatnot. Beyond that, um, I, I witnessed a, uh, a fighting tournament, like a fight games tournament for the first time the other week. And uh, it was uh, Toto, who you're, you're going to hear later on in the episode as well. He was doing, uh, I happened to walk in at the finals of this game and it was very exciting i wouldn't have thought that like a game fate like by a fight game i mean like mortal Kombat or street fighter or something like that where it's sort of a side scroller that is heavily dependent on timing and throwing the proper combos so but it was really cool again there was this charged atmosphere in there and there was a whole lot of strategy going back and forth and you could tell that when one person was cool calm and collected focused all that sort of thing that you know their their technique would tighten up and they'd be doing well on the screen but if you started to get flustered it, it started to affect the performance on the screen as well so it was really really interesting to see that interplay and of course just to see the the cool support for esports that that there was at that particular location so that was a lot of fun and uh, like i said you'll be Hearing from Toto a little bit later on as well, but I thought that was pretty cool. Well, let's see what else. Um, oh, I picked up this game for the Xbox uh, called Real Realpolitics, and as you can guess, it's about Realpolitics. Uh, and it, it's base. It starts one of the the earliest scenario 
the kind of beginner scenario, starts in 2020. And you pick a country on the planet, any country. And I mean any country. You can go click on anything. They recommend, like, one of the bigger ones with a, a larger economy, like the U.S. or Russia or China. But, you know, you, you can go just about anywhere. And then you play that country out. I mean, it's really interesting. You get to pick like domestic policies and kind of where your military is going to focus, how strong the military is, how much focus there is toward GDP. But even all of that is affected by the world economy, which you can then, like, there's a whole lot of complexity to this game. And of course, the reason I bring it up is if there's a war in it as well. Of course, you can go to war with other powers, with other countries. And how much of that is influenced by the politics that are occurring and by the other superfluous things that aren't actually battle or related to the, the military itself. It's really cool. It's really cool. So if you're, if you're looking for a, a game that kind of models the whole picture, you know, not just the, the war or the battle itself, but everything around that as well, I would heavily recommend this game. I know it's on Xbox. I'm not sure what other system is on, but it's outstanding and I would recommend it. And uh, lastly, I just wanted to comment a little bit on the, the tragedy that's unfolding in the Ukraine. This, uh, this episode is being recorded only a couple of days before it comes out. And what I've been seeing on the news, apart from, of course, if we take this to a humanitarian level, it's absolutely atrocious. But from a military science perspective, you know, we're seeing everything that we've been studying. You know, there was a plan. The plan was thought to be solid. It went downhill real fast once it hit reality. Uh, they made the mistake of attacking cities, which uh, just about every single person that we've studied says, no, 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 avoid cities at all costs if you can. And, uh, and so that's where the, the main slugfest has been and where, you know, the, the Russians have been running into the most trouble. And so there's a, a whole new conflict now, you know, brewing in the East and it's just absolutely brutal. It's kind of hard to tell who's where and what's exactly happening. And we try not to stay, uh, be political on this show, but we obviously stand with Ukraine and uh, with its people. Just because it's happening in real time and we can study it doesn't mean it's not a humanitarian crisis and, and something to be taken seriously. So both of these things are true. And um, yeah, uh, we're doing what we can to help and I encourage you to as well. But enough of all that, we are now going to jump into our episode about conditioning combat for our advantage. You might have figured out by now that it is not a typo or a misspeak when I say conditioning combat. I know that normally when we hear those two words together, it is combat conditioning, which refers to uh, exercises and drills that make us better conditioned for combat in that way. But in this particular case, we're talking about conditioning the events surrounding combat in order to bring the fullest advantage to ourselves. Now, I know this is a, a topic that we have kind of brushed on in previous sections, and we're going to actually end up doing that quite a bit. Clausewitz is a very thorough thinker. And so he constantly references things that are, you know, in the, in the past and they, he interweaves them with what he's talking about. And I think that's kind of cool. It, it, uh, even though it's rather complicated, it does make sure that the idea and its continuation stays alive in our minds. Not that, you know, some authors may put a continuation of an idea, but without referencing the previous idea, it may get lost as to what 
they're actually saying, you know. Whereas with Clausewitz, there's there's really no misunderstanding the man. <laughs> he very much explains himself um, uh, too much sometimes. But so some of the things we're going to talk about have been discussed in previous episodes, but we're kind of bringing it together under this veneer of conditioning combat. So most of these uh, conditions, as it were, are causes that, that condition combat are things that we may have control over in of themselves, but uh, each contribute in their own way to how they condition our use of combat. Because if uh, you recall, our uh, definition of strategy was the uh, application of combat in kind of strategic ways to achieve our victory. So if we're going to use our combat, of course, there's, there's conditions in which it, it must apply to be redundant like our author. So the first of these causes and conditions is moral qualities and effects. And this is something that we've gone over quite a bit, is kind of what feeds in to the moral, morale, and into the kind of spirit of the army itself. And that's absolutely going to affect what becomes of our force and the opponent's force on the field. If our force is very much into it, you know, they're happy to be there, everybody is in good spirits and focused, well, that's definitely going to condition combat uh, to our advantage. Whereas if we show up and we're, you know, kind of dragging our feet and we may have not eaten well or we're distracted with other things, well, that will also condition our combat. So it's important for us to kind of take this into effect. And this, again, is, is kind of a higher meta thinking. Most people go to their events or to their tournaments and they're, they're there to have fun too. And I can appreciate that. But this is, this is absolutely something that plays itself out on the field. And you can see it yourself when you watch people fight. Another cause and condition would be the whole mass of the military force available to us. And this includes all sorts of things from organization of the military, who's in charge, how that authority delegates itself through the ranks. And then, of course, the, the bigger one for me, the proportion of the three arms, as it were. And no Gene Steeler cult players, we're not referencing the, the three arms of a neophyte. We are referencing the three arms of an army, which are to say the infantry, the cavalry, and the long range, whether it be artillery or projectiles or, or whatever the case may be. So in our case, our infantry would be your normal ground pounders, you know, your dangles, sword and boards, and your line. The cavalry is going to be the fast moving types who are usually working on the wings. And then our artillery, of course, is bow and arrow, typically. Whereas for battle games like tabletop battle games, there are usually literal models for each of these things. And this proportion is absolutely going to influence how we're able to accomplish anything on the field. You know, if we have more infantry, we're going to be set to uh, do other things. Remember that we had talked about infantry having a, a better time in kind of clustered areas, you know, trees, crags, that sort of thing. So if we're strong on infantry, that might be the, the condition. We may want to, you know, change where we are based on that. If we're cav heavy, well, then the open fields, absolutely. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a no-brainer. And then artillery kind of ma makes it so you're more stationary, that you're trying to find a place with a good vantage and defend that with your other arms. So each of these things condition the use of that combat, right? What kind of combat we're going to approach is conditioned by the proportion of these three arms. 
And there's a few other things that go into this whole mass of the military force, but that's, that's the bigger portions of it. Like, how is it organized? Who's in charge? How do you like delegate that authority? And the proportion of the three arms in terms of what are we actually capable of to the best degree. Next would be the geometrics of the situation. And a lot of the times, this is the angle of the line of operation. The reason an oblique works so well is because of this principle, because you're moving at a, you're moving straight ahead and chewing up your opponent at a diagonal and prepared to do it. So they're being met by a solid force, whereas they are really only a line of fighters at that point, or a line of, of models. So that line is very important. It's not straight on, it's at that diagonal, that oblique, right? And so, again, that, that geometric influences. Uh, the concentric movements that we can make and the eccentric movements that we make. Which ones are predictable? Which ones do we just have to do in terms of our drilling, in terms of our training? And how can we break out of the mold? How can we do something that's a, a bit more off the cuff, right? And then just any math in general. You know, totaling up your bullets, totaling up your number of arrows, your number of fighters, uh, even even number of years on the field in order to like calculate veterans or whatever the case may be. These are your geometrics, your your math that comes into play here. Our fourth cause and condition would be the influences of the country itself, and so you know this would include things like commanding points, right? Are there areas that are more in charge uh, of the field than others? Do they offer better lanes of fire? Do they offer more defensible positions? Like these are going to be, you know, commanding points, key points on a battlefield or on a, or a table. Hills. Hills definitely influence how we're going to fight and what we can see and how we can attack it. And the difference between fighting uphill and downhill, like that definitely influences how the combat goes. Rivers, depending on who is where in relation to the river, absolutely conditions combat. Woods. As we talked about before, various uh, proportions to our military force uh, favor either the, the woods or the uh, open plains. Roads, the, the presence of roads, this may not be as important for what we do because if you're tabletop gaming, we're generally on an established battlefield. And when we're doing physical war gaming, the field itself is fairly well established. So normally this isn't that big of a deal or that prominent of a feature in our games. But for actual military operations, this is huge. Can we get our gear, our people, our fighting vehicles in and out of an area? And where are we limited by the presence of roads and terrain? Like if, if there's, if we're just kind of in an open desert area, then the roads probably are not as significant or as important. Whereas if we're going through mountainous country, those roads suddenly become very, very, very important. So. Influences of country definitely play in. And then we have our means of supply, which generally means where are we getting our stuff? Where are we getting our replacement arrows? Where are we getting our replacement rocks? Where are we getting our re replacement bullets, uniforms, boots, food, machine parts, camping supplies? You know, there, there's, there's a lot of supply that needs to be thought of. And, and most of the time, especially if we're going for a, a short camp out, this isn't as important. And of course, if we're on the tabletop, supply kind of takes on a different meaning. But again, for, for an actual army, for something moving through the field, this would be very important. Where are we being fed from? Is it a, is it a train that's following us? Is it some sort of stash 
a, a, a battery someplace that we're drawing from? From are we are we actually foraging from the land, going to local farms and local places, and and kind of harvesting what we need at the time? This influences how we can approach combat. For instance, how spread out our troops on. Typically, a foraging army is going to be more desperate than one who has a, a train, which is going to influence how combat first kicks off. So, man, I've been saying so a lot. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm just going to sew you to death this episode. <laughs> I, I might as well be over here making some garb while I'm at it. These are the causes which can condition the use of combat. And I, and I think we've, we've kind of looked over how they do and what limitations they put on what we are doing. And if we try to look at these things all together, it can be very complicated. But if we separate these elements and we view them as, as different things, different causes and conditions, then we can clearly estimate the value or the relative value of each. You know, remember before we had said that roads are important, right? But they are more important in a mountainous country or a very wooded country than they would be in very flat country. And so the, the importance of roads becomes less because of the other influence of country. Or if we've got a massive military force, the geometrics might not matter as much because the balance goes toward the massive military force. They should, we should understand that they feed into one another. Right? There's, they aren't separate entirely. We're viewing them as separate in terms of how they are influencing what is happening. But then we also kind of bring that knowledge together and view it as a whole. Doing both is good. Viewing them individually, but also viewing them together. But understanding that they contribute individually. And here I am pulling a Klaus Fitz. These moral forces that we're talking about and have spoken on a lot, a lot through, especially out the course of this book... They, it cannot be understated. It cannot be understated the importance of moral forces. And the reasons for this are thus. They are the fastest to kind of affix themselves to the will. And they have one of the strongest influences on the will. And of course, that will is what puts into motion and guides this entire system. Whether or not it is ourselves as an individual fighter, willing ourselves to do better, to move faster, to strike our opponent before they strike us, or whether or not as a commander, moving an entire squad, platoon, company, army, we need to understand that this, these moral forces are the most important because they tend to be the most influential and they tend to be kind of out of our control. In a lot of ways, once it happens, once bad morale kicks in, that's something that needs to be fixed by things that we can do. But it's also a matter of just the spirit changing, the mood changing. Well, same thing with good morale. If a unit or a person has really good morale, it can be difficult to change that. And understanding how this works is really important. And it matters the for us individually. If I'm going to a tournament or if I'm going to an event, I'm going with good energy. And I don't mean that in a metaphysical sort of way, but I mean I'm going in and I'm, and I'm thinking positively, or at least I'm trying to. I'm focusing on, on what I've been doing well, on my strong points, and kind of running through my plan tentatively in my head, kind of trying to visualize already what's going to happen and put myself in a positive, advantageous position even through that. So I've conditioned huh, my, my mind, my moral forces before I even get there. 
you know, if, if we're going to go on a on any sort of, of trip, if we're going to go on any sort of uh, gathering with people. And the way we come into things, as we've been saying, really matters as how we're going to approach them going forward. And they would do this, they do this in the regular army as well. I've, you know, I was a part of the army for a short time. And when we were in training, there was a whole lot of esprit de corps that they tried to fill us with, a whole lot of patriotism, a whole lot of motivation for what we were doing and, and bonding exercises so that we were kind of involved, like emotionally involved with our unit and with our unit mates. And it really conditioned us to be able to do well. And I know it does across the, the beam and it happened all throughout history. I mean, it happens with, with us, with us <laughs> too. Um, you know, we go, if we go in and there's a bad feeling. You know, let's say there's been a massive disagreement amongst the unit or a fight of some sort has broken out. You know, those factors really matter going on to the field as it's going to affect how that unit moves around one another. If we go on to uh, the tabletop and we are not in a great mood, we don't want to be there, we think we're going to lose, we're going to do worse than we would if we came on with a positive attitude with the idea of looking for opportunities rather than bemoaning our disadvantages. So this, this does matter. It matters to prep beforehand because again, once, once it's there, once we're already experiencing it, it's hard because it's already affecting the whole system, right? And this feeling escapes book analysis. I can read about it all day. And I did. Before I turned 15 and before I joined up with something like Bellegarth, I had read all sorts of these books. And I thought that I had all the answers. I thought that I understood how moral factors worked. I thought I understood how different systems worked in a practical setting. And I was wrong. <laughs> the first like two or three years of my wargaming experience, of my actual on the field fighting people experience was spent unlearning the bad habits or the bad lessons I had given myself, thinking that I understood and, and really, really grasped something that was ineffable when it comes through a book. And even then, even what we have experienced, and once you get used to being on our field and fighting our way, not shrinking away from shots and thinking in an in a aggressive and productive manner, even that is nothing compared to actual combat, right? So each of these things have to be experienced and wargaming is no different. We can't do it theoretically and expect it to be exactly the same as it is in our head because nothing matches reality like reality does. So the whole thing has to be felt and experienced and it can't be categorized by mere numbers. When we're looking at a battle or we're looking at a war, merely seeing the casualty numbers, that doesn't help us understand what happened. It helps us understand who got hurt and how many, but it doesn't, it doesn't help us understand what happened. That comes from experience. That comes from more knowledge, from more data. And it's important that we understand this. It's important that we look at these, these uh, factors, that we look at these theories in the book and make sure that we try to observe them in a practical fashion and see how they play out in the real world. These moral forces, let's double back to that. These moral forces, uh, we, we can call those a couple of different things. It could be the spirit or other moral qualities of our quote-unquote army, whether or not be the army of the self, our unit, or our realm, or our kingdom, or heck, just our side on, a, on the field of battle. 
or uh, you know our, our experience or happiness going into a Warhammer game or something along those lines. These qualities to the army, you know, that that's the moral forces. But this is also a matter of public opinion, isn't it? And this is also important in, in what we're doing because public opinion in two different ways. One would be in the occupied provinces and one would be in the home country. And for us, the occupied provinces would probably be when we travel to an event, right? You know, that's a place that we don't necessarily have direct control, but definitely influences how our army or our unit is, inter is uh, kind of interacting. If that realm or location tournament is having issues, you know, there's, there's either, you know, internal power struggles or uh, a lack of supply or whatever the case may be that, that changes the public opinion, that changes the, you know, the moral quality of where we're going, that is going to influence the overall moral factor. Yeah. And, and the same thing is back home. If we're, if our realm is super contentious, even if we're leaving, that contentiousness follows us. That contentiousness is absolutely something that influences how we go forward. So we don't necessarily have control over these things. You know, I can't control exactly how my home realm is going to be, or my home gaming group is going to be. And I can't guarantee what the opposing place is going to be when I travel right? When I go into those provinces, I don't know what the, the atmosphere is going to be. I, I can't control that either, but I can research and study that atmosphere and kind of be prepared for it, right? And understand how it affects these. And then there's the moral effect of recent victories or defeats. If we've been on a losing streak, it's very easy to be down on ourselves. You know, it's very easy to, to want to, you know, ho-hum, do the Eeyore thing. And if we've been winning a bunch, it's easy to be confident, it's easy to be uh, kind of lighter in our feet because we have been winning. And so that is prominent in our minds. But this is important to understand that either of these things into a extreme can lead us down a path of danger. Because if we have been winning a lot and we begin to think ourselves maybe invincible a little bit, well, then how much harder is the fall that is not expected? When somebody does something that we are not expecting because we didn't plan for it, because we are already perfect, and then we fall because of that, because we let our pride get the better of us with these victories. But the opposite is true too. We can defeat ourselves before we're even on the field by, you know, doubting, by punishing ourselves for, for mistakes that we haven't even made. Instead of looking at what we've done, critiquing it for sure, but doing so fairly and with the mind of developing something productive afterwards. It is not enough just to chastise ourselves. It is not enough to just self-flagellate. Something must be done. An alteration in behavior, an alteration in technique or method must be done. And any alteration is better because it might yield better results. If it doesn't, we throw that one out too. It's all a learning process. Most of us go through a lot of different style and method alterations before we find something that actually really works. And even then, as the meta evolves and different people's fighting or play style changes, we also have to be kind of changing the way we do things. And so really, we never stop learning. And really, we never stop benefiting from defeat in this way, if we look at it the proper way, if we look at it as something to learn from. So the moral effect of victories, defeats, that influences in for better or for worse. And we have a, a, a very terrible philosophy. Anybody who's not taking this into account, anybody who's not taking moral forces into account with what they're doing. And if they want to be competitive, 
it's that's dangerous. It's dangerous to neglect these things. All the best fighters I know have some sort of pre-combat or pre-game routine that keeps them on their, on point, brings their morale up to a certain point that they want it to be at, that they can go in, having it in their head, and maintain it. You know, I myself have a playlist. I always have, from all the way back of when I was doing music competitions and speech and debate stuff. You know, I always had music on before I went in for my rounds or for my solo because it got me in my headspace. I didn't want to talk to my peers. That, that just made me nervous. But sitting there and, you know, listening to some, some corn or some Eminem because I was edgy, you know, uh, that got me into the, into the mood. That got me into a headspace where I was ready to perform, where I was ready to go after that victory, regardless of whether I'd done well in the past. I was just motivated, you know? And so just because we're, we're taking this into account doesn't mean we have to like sit there and dwell on it. We can all do it in this subtle way. I sit here and dwell on it because that's my job is to hash and rehash and rehash. So we can all sit here and think about all the different ways it could be interpreted. But the simple matter is just what we bring into it mood wise is often what we get out of it. And uh, it's, it's a terrible philosophy that fails to take that into account. And for every rule that relates to physical forces in war gaming or, or war, there is a, there are just as many moral forces that impact that physical force and not, I mean, not literally. I mean, like the moral forces don't necessarily impact where the bomb is going to fall. Wind speed and direction and the arc, all those things that impacts that the bomb <laughs> doesn't experience moral factors, the pilot dropping it or the artilleryman firing it. They both experience moral factors. So we might explain it that way, but for every maneuver, for every charge, there are just as many moral forces that are contributing to that. And they need to be taken into account. What are these chief moral forces that we cannot undervalue? He stresses that. Oh my goodness. Do not undervalue these three chief moral forces. So after all this stuff about moral forces, let's, let's just talk about which ones are the chief ones. You have the talents of the commander which is pretty self-explanatory. Our first one, talents of the commander. How good are we? Or whoever's in charge. That influences, obviously, the morale. Not just because it influences whether or not there have been victories or defeats, but it influences the confidence that the army has in their commander. When Lee was put in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia, everybody called him the old war horse. You know, he was an old man was incapable of much. The Mexican-American War, he was known for being a good commander, but a rather uninspiring and predictable commander. Nobody knew that he was going to be the, the force that he was, but after those first foyers into battle, the Army of Northern Virginia became a huge fan of Robert E. Lee, and they marched through absolute hell for that man. They operated at a lesser supply level the entire war than the North did. They had worse gear, worse weapons, worse food all the way across. And, and yet sometimes they had better morale because of this, because of the, just the talents of their commander contributed massively to that. The next one, our second moral force, would be military virtue of the army. And I actually want to expand on this one way more than I have time for here. So our next episode will deal with the military virtue of an army and the military virtue of the self. So we're going to go into that next time. Let's leave that for now.
And our third contributing force is the national feeling. Is it, do we have enthusiasm? Do we have a fanatical zeal working on our side? Do we have faith? Do we have an opinion? It's so much easier to fight and so much more uh, spirited, right? Fighting. If we believe in what we're doing. If we have faith in what we're doing. You know, if you have religious conflicts that are, they, they overcome a lot of hardship as well, simply because of faith. This national feeling of faith that drives the military force or fanatical zeal. Remember, we were talking about the pacification of the Vendean region and just the fanatical zeal that contributed to the Republican wins over there. And, you know, the enthusiasm certainly helps. And so this national feeling is also a really big deal. You can see the influence on even America's wars. The war in Vietnam went poorly after a fashion in, in part due to the national feeling. The soldiers went over not feeling super into it because the people back home weren't super into it. And they came back to hostility. And that national feeling of, of being anti-war, anti-military, absolutely contributed to America's loss in Vietnam. Again, there were, there were other issues certainly that contributed to that loss, but the national feeling did not help, especially toward the end there. So this is, this can be hugely important on whether or not a war continues to be prosecuted and how it continues to be prosecuted. Let's, let's talk about some example situations real quick before we need to go to our interview with Toto. Some example, example situations of how these moral forces affect what we can do in the field and where we're going to be the strongest. So mountains, let's look at mountains. They are best for popular levies, you know, forces coming together, where spirit and loyalty are high. Where you have people who really believe in their cause and they're very, very dedicated to one another. Think about our, the recent war in Afghanistan with the Taliban. The uh, Americans had better equipment, more people, Better, like better weapons all of the way around. And yet the Taliban continued to do well and eventually won the conflict due to uh, the, the spirit and loyalty being high. They were able to operate in the mountains, which was a huge contributing factor to their victory by breaking up the ability of the Americans to bring a, a conventional force to bear, right? That, that it's not another army facing off with another army like it was in the uh, first Iraq war where it just they, we ripped across Kuwait and just bullied our way straight the way through a line. Well, that was conventional warfare. America set up for that. This is harder. This is much harder for a conventional army. And that's only possible. The only reason that the Taliban was able to do this so well was because their spirit was high. They believed in what they were doing and they were very much loyal to their local clan structures. Let's look at uh, how we benefit from a, a larger conventional force. Expertise and training and tempered courage, like we see in a conventional force. Uh, you, know, you think about the Continentals, the Redcoats, right? They were extremely well-trained. And they, you know, if they can march into cannon fire and hails of musket fire and still keep their, <laughs> keep their stuff together, that's impressive. That's very impressive. And an army like this is superior in the open country, where they can really just use that power, use that superior training and courage, uh, the discipline to just come at their opponent and outdo them. And this is, this is one of the reasons why for us on the field, where this is very common for us, it's why I recommend being very well trained and keeping it together, trying to have our moral forces controlled and on our side, because this is us. 
for the most part. We're, we're on open country. So the expertise in our training and our tempered courage as well is going to help us win and contribute to our overall moral forces and, you know, is something that is um, influenced by. This is a, uh, a give and take relationship, not truly cause and effect. And then our talents of a general are best on display when we're dealing with a closely intersected or undulating country. If you've never been to Eastern Montana or to the kind of Dakotas, Wyoming area, you may think of flat as just flat. And there is certainly flat. There's like proper Great Plains flat where you can just walk for an eternity in a direction and there might be some gopher holes, but it's flat. This is not true with a good portion of Wyoming, Eastern Montana and such areas, because while it looks flat, what you're dealing with is a lot of ups and downs. You have lots of valleys and lots of hills that don't really look like it until you're close. And this is where Custer ran into the problem, right? You know, he didn't understand exactly how this was and his talents were not fully on display because he did not appreciate the value of, or the uh, nature of his enemy. Didn't know the danger of his enemy. He was going into the situation blind as we advise against time and time again. But this can also be seen as something along the lines of, you know, League of Legends or any other place where we have choke points, a lot of castle battles or, you know, woods battles where we have perhaps like some hills going on and maybe some, some foliage as well. The talents are best on display because especially when we're dealing with proper war, that is where a general can use their military to its most effective because they have more control of where it is in relation to that map. Are they on a hill? Do they have the commanding position? Are they moving through a valley, moving up on their opponent? Where on those? Again, this, this is all very much talent. And so you have a very talented general. And again, I'm going to go back to the American Civil War. The, most of the battlefields that took place, that were you know, very famous between the, the North and the South. By the South, I mean the, the Army of Northern Virginia. That took place in undulating country. You know, very, very, not mountainous, but very hilly country where there were very specific areas that were kind of choke points. And this was a great place for a commander to show off their worth, as Robert E. Lee did for the majority of the first part. And then Grant came in and, and did for the second part. So here we see the moral forces and how they absolutely condition combat. And, and of course, there were the other things as well. We've got the whole mass of the military, which is something, of course, that we have discussed and will continue to discuss. The geometrics, which are complicated, but also you kind of need to be there and see them to understand them. Uh, the country and how it's influenced. And then, of course, our, our means of supply. And next time, we're going to look at the military virtue of an army and of the self and how this contributes as well to our victory. But in the meantime, let's cut over to an interview with Toto. us today to talk about these ideas of conditioning combat to our advantage is an old friend of the show and a good friend of mine, Toto. A good to have you back, man. It's good to be back. Thanks again for hosting me, brother. So before this, I just want to fill everybody in. Toto gave me a sound stomping in, uh, we did a Grey Knights versus Dark Angels matchup and your, your, your strategy was good. Your positioning was good. Your patience was good. And while I think we both played a good game, obviously, with a score difference of, what was it, 73 to 50? Yeah, it was like 22 points, I think, right. in the total. And you could even take four off of mine if you wanted to be 
No, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. So yeah, you did, you did an excellent job in, in doing that. And when we're talking about this, I do want to kind of examine a little bit of that real quick. Because when we're talking about these geometrices, for instance, you use those to like a huge advantage in a lot of different ways. What helps you keep that mindset? What helps you continue to look at those things and try to analyze the board and not get kind of out of place based on, uh, I don't know, misunderstandings or, or assumptions or whatever? Right. Um, I think it's it's general awareness of ranges, much like if you're on the field in Belgarth, you want to be more aware of things that can touch you from farther away, sure. even if you're far away from them. Mm -hmm. Archers, spears, glaives, that sort of thing. It's mm -hmm. not a bad idea to keep a slightly closer eye on them. Uh, and the same thing applies on the on the wargaming table as well, because if you have guys in the back with a 30-inch range, uh, I know that walking into your main force with, with a slightly shorter range is just a, it's a death trap, because everything's coming into me. Sure. So I need to try and force you into the middle ground where I can stay out of range of your back line. You stay centered. What also didn't help that I my entire secondary played into that. It's like, I need to go into the center. And you were like, come on, baby. Yeah, I just... <laughs> there, I mean, there, there, there were reasons you stayed far behind. And that's because you were doing the exact same thing. Uh, in a quite literal fashion, you had pieces within nine inches from the edge of the board. And this prevented me from deep striking in behind you, taking, taking your rear. But I totally chose the wrong secondaries for it. Because like you said, I, I had to play a defensive game just because of you know, your army and who you are and, and knowing that if I left those gaps, you would be there. Right. Um, and so I, I had to kind of be defensive, but unfortunately, again, I chose secondaries that were like, kill you. And so you, all you had to do is be like, oh, that unit is getting wounded or something. I'm going to blip it to the back line with my teleport madness, gray knight stuff. It is a little it maddening. It is a little maddening. It's an amazing quality to the army, and it's something to really consider. Again, that mobility makes it a very interesting army to play against. Difficult, but very interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I would say it, it's a very unique trait to be that, you know, board controlling. Yeah. Um, and not not a lot of armies have that. And it's, it's, it's not just that they can do it once. It's that it's, it's a fairly persistent quality of the army. I can always drop two CP. I can always right. cast a spell and have a real powerful person influencing a completely separate side of the map. So... In a way, it, it, it inherently makes you want to be defensive. You, you, you want to focus on how to defend against everything they can do. Right. Sending big rigs at you at a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> um, you talk about my gene stealers. I'm, yeah, I, I'm talking about your gene. I'm talking about a lot of things. MVP truck. <laughs> <laughs> that, that did crush me. I was very sad. Dude, I, I, again, that just as an aside, everybody... Like, everybody underestimates the truck. Mm -hmm. And then it comes in and, like, eats a, a, an infantry unit or two, and they're like, oh, my God, the truck. <laughs> MVP truck, what can I say? It just it does its job well. But what you were saying about, um, you know, again, using that, it's, it's a, an individual thing that the Grey Knights can do consistently, being able to, like, move other places on the board and really um, exploit any mm -hmm. sort of weaknesses that are there. Well, that's just the, the mass of your military force. You don't have the numbers. Exactly. But what you have is teleport tricks. Versatility. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can take my few numbers and make them feel big in places very quickly. I can if I have one unit that feels a little out of you know, outstretched, I can instantly put two in two units, big ones, right next to it. For sure. So it's it's really hard to judge what is 
what I'm doing incorrectly when there's so much that can just fly to its side and aid. Sure. Sure. But again, you play it well. Thank you. You're, you're, you know, you're just coming into your own with the army and you understand, I think, uh, far more, far better than you did before, sure, how to use that, that whole mass of military force, like what's going on there and not, not using the tactics that I would use with the armies that I'm doing because I'm not using great knights. And I don't know, again, like it's, it's interesting to continue playing against you as you get better and better. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the compliment. It's, it's fun to, uh, to challenge myself with you as I am learning this very deep game. <laughs> it, it requires some homework. It does. That'd do. A little also, more than most games. Yeah. Yeah. We also do the same thing on the battlefield too. It's not just on the tabletop, but you also know how to use the, the whole mass of your military force to its its utmost. As we've talked about before, you've won unit battles singularly. <laughs> I have. Uh, uh, several times on, on, on larger fields. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just a matter of precision. It's a matter of knowing what, what's, what is safe, uh, and how to maintain that safety, even as, you know, there's three or four main skirmishes happening on the field at the same time. Right. Because if you can stay on the edge of those, it's hard for someone to break out and kill you. Um, and it's hard for, you know... Unless you let yourself get wrapped by the by the ensuing battles, it's it's hard for you to be really cornered. But that's where that awareness comes in. You have to stay, you know, keep in mind that these people are fighting super close to me, and and I need to keep this other group on the other side of them, so that you're always free. It's it's uh, you know playing the whole field, as the football coach might say. <laughs> A lot of people say this too, like uh, folks that I have come on the show, a lot of them say that this is the, what people strive for. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people succeed at it. Not as many people excel at it. As, and as, as, again, it's a, it's a technique that you have, you know, kind of perfected over the years. You didn't ever work, like work as a part of a unit. Like you've kind of linked up every now and then to kind of work with people, Mia. Like with um, the AU that yep. we had forever ago. Indeed. But, a decade ago now. Yeah, Boy, we're right. old. How's that feel? Oh. oh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> now that I'm done contemplating <laughs> my next AARP meeting. <laughs> um, but no, it, and it was because of this, you have had to train in a certain way. And you have become, had to become good in a certain way. So while if I tried to do that thing, I might be moderately successful at it. But because I have spent most of my training in with other people, I, I just, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I don't think most people are because they're not Toto. <laughs> well, you flatter me, sir. Uh, but it's, it's about knowing that, that, like knowing that you're safe is, is the first half of the battle, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that you're not about to get backstabbed because right. it's really easy by yourself. No one to warn you. You can't watch your back all the time. So having that general approximation of the field running in your head mm-hmm. is really useful. Um, but really knowing when to intimidate as well. It's a, you, you can't cross the line to being unsafe right? because that just gets you killed. That's how you make mistakes or, or, or force yourself into errors you didn't need to make. Sure. Um, but if you, can, if you can push on someone and get someone else to engage them, to consume them, the winning side might even lose two or three people. And then I have, you know, really what happened is seven people died, and those are seven of my opponents. Right. But only five of the winning team's opponents died, because two of them died. 
Sure. Right. right. So it's 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 a much smaller force and on both ends for me if I can influence the fight safely. Condition it. If exactly. You will. <laughs> Very much so. And, and there's a lot of different ways to do that, you know. And uh, of course, the influence of country, we have experienced that from from every angle. Of course, we had wonderful places to fight, like um, Haley in Idaho at Silverbell. There, oh, mm-hmm. Love, perfect. Loved it. Like the grass was so sweet and smooth that you could do an electric slide on it <laughs> and not scuff your knees up. It That's was true. amazing. It was a, it was a silken experience until it wasn't. Until yeah. you were covered in leeches or. <laughs> Well, I didn't go into the, the, the leech pond. ponds. Well, I mean, no one tried to go into the leech pond. I never went into the leech pond. But did people go into the leech pond? <laughs> yes. Some people went in the leech pond. The divot went in the leech pond. <laughs> yeah, I bet. No, That's where you... the divot came from. <laughs> Sucked them dry right there. <laughs> you don't have to confirm that <laughs> before I report it as, report, report it as truth. Uh but it, but it does, you know, and you have that nice field, which allows you to be able to work really well. That openness, that ability to have a, a, a good view of everything and where people are, that's got to help. Absolutely. Dealing with that, like, three-dimensional map that you make in your mind. If you don't have clarity, you can't do the measurements. Right? How do you maintain that? In, like, we went and did some forest fighting right. when we were younger, and there are totally different rules. Uh, for fighting in uneven terrain mm-hmm. and in something like a forest where everything is obscured. Would what you do work as well there? And what would you have to change? I would say in a forest with more actual area around you denied, finding a space that you only have to maneuver inside of, like a little circle to call your own, mm-hmm. would be what I would go for unless people were like teaming up, you know, sure. and coming around me or something like that. Um, but it's, it's harder to get through like little birch trees or something like that to come to someone. You do have to sidestep through like the leaves, maybe if it's autumn or something, you know, and and it does, it does slow you down. It does change how you have to approach someone. If they take a hard left or a hard right, you can't smack yourself into a tree. Sure. Um, so being more stationary and having a really good lay of a particular section of the land is going to be beneficial to you more so than like walking around because it's so... I just gestured myself into the microphone. I'm sorry, the folks at home. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought completely. Uh, it, you can be, it's, it's, it's harder to, to, you know, keep track of everyone when there's so much stuff in your periphery, unlike sure. on a flat field right. where it, the only thing around you is people. If it moves, it's, it's, it's a threat, right. probably. Especially for you. If it moves, it's a threat. Yeah, always, 100% <laughs> of the time. So I just get to, you know, be hyper paranoid for <laughs> 10 minutes or however long, you know, if the battle lasts. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because my assumption would have been the exact opposite. That in a, mo- like, to try, especially as an individual, uh, moving amongst units, mm-hmm. that if you were in a forest setting, that it would, like, behoove you to be in constant motion. Right. To make sure that there was no place where somebody could be like, that's where he's going to be. Right. But... I'm not you, so I... <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say make it your home forever. Right. Like, change it up where, wherever you're at, like battle to battle or something like that. Sure. Don't become predictable. But, uh, yeah, I, I just feel like knowing where the fight is relative to you as a singular person, when there's so much visual noise by you in, like, a forest setting, uh, it feels a lot easier to me. It feels easier to keep track of everyone. 
Hmm. From from like a home base type scenario. Sure. Whereas on the field, it's a lot. Even if some, you know, two people are fighting behind me, mm-hmm. I can be like, oh, that's seven people. That fight's gonna take a hot second. Or like, that's a three on one. They're coming for me next. I need mm-hmm. to skadoodle on out of here. And if I'm constantly moving around with foliage at the side, it, it just becomes a more difficult scenario. Sure. In my eyes. Well, I, there's a lot of different, and this kind of. Uh, the example I would use is that, you know, infantry do decently in, um, in a forested area mm-hmm. because they're good at locking down and controlling spaces. Right. Cavalry, which is what I would call kind of your style, that constant motion, that constant harassment without really, um, dedication yeah, to a singular. Like true initiation. Yeah. I would say that you're a bit more like Cav. And mm-hmm. again, according to every military textbook that there is, Cav, <laughs> Cav struggles in the woods. Yeah, it's true. A little bit. And on, uh, have we ever fought on like a mountain or anything like that? Apart from the um, Great some, Hunt walks? Some good hills, I yeah. suppose, but not nothing truly mountainous, nothing perilous by, for any degree. Ragnarok. <laughs> like, Ragnarok would be an awesome event for you to go to because, yeah. I mean, it's huge. Mm-hmm. And the site, I don't know if they're going to have it at the same site, actually. But there's like the big field battle area. And then there's like a back-end woods, like massively hilly area where you have to like take trails through everything because it's yeah. really steep. And heavily wooded, and it was, you know, they did like capture the flag and stuff there, and it was mm. really cool. I bet sounds just dangerous enough to be fun, like a like a fine game of uh, grenades, footy knifey. Oh, <laughs> footy knifey, <laughs> footy knifey. <laughs> We're just gonna go with that. Okay, fair enough. I don't know what it's actually called, but now it's called footy knifey. But now it's called footy knifey. It's a good game. But it was awesome. I, I enjoyed being there. The only thing, like, and again, I'm not throwing shade, but uh, there was one game where it was like, and this is the sword of... And this shield does... And this red... And it's like, I'm sitting there in the back being like, I have no idea what any of these specialized weapons or dudes do. Right. All I know is I'm going to hit somebody. Yep. And if they're like, you're dead because of X, Y, or Z reason, I, I'll just be like, whatever. Fine. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, but it was it was a little complicated. But I, I, I enjoyed the the setting. Absolutely. Something to be said for a nice visual. Indeed. Along with the fight. Well, and, and you know, Western Pennsylvania is just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I would never know. Before we got into this, you had said that you actually wanted to talk a bit about the means of supply. And it was something that I was actually struggling to bring in in a different way than I've talked about before. So I'm curious, your thoughts on means of supply and how it relates to the wargaming that we do. So I think that it's hard to correlate resources like food or water or shelter uh, onto a wargaming table. But if you look at it from the perspective of anything that you spend that runs out, you have to look at resource management in a whole new light, and you can really bring a lot of those concepts down to the board, I feel. Um, so means of supply, uh, knowing when to take a trade in your favor uh, for a resource. If, say, I knew that you know you had three CP and I had five, uh, this, this came up in a, in a game. Uh, with Swen, where I, I forced him to Perils of the Warp or something mm-hmm. for a CP. Mm-hmm. But the, the Thousand Sons had, they can spend a CP and not suffer Perils of the Warp. Right. So really all we're, all we're doing is exchanging CP. But if I know I have a lead in command points, and I know I can make him spend this one, mm-hmm. 
well, I, I'm still going to have plenty of this resource, right? It's looking at it in a way that you can you can manufacture your opponent to spend their resources with your actions on the table, I think is a really fascinating subject for 40k in particular with the vast amount of things you can do with a command point. And you, yeah, you make an excellent point. Uh, point that um, it, it is something that is overlooked. This idea of, of, of the management of command points and making sure that they're being... I, like, I know a lot of folks that I've seen, like the more pros, mm -hmm. say that command points should only be spent if they're going to help you achieve victory. Yep. Not in like, oh, I, you know, I failed this role and I don't want to fail this role sort of thing, but like, is, is what I'm doing directly moving me towards victory? Right. And I mean, that's using your supply because it's limited. It is, extremely. Right? Like you get one back every turn, but... You only get one back every turn. Exactly, and there there's a strategy that I have that costs three command points. Mm -hmm. In our game, we started with twelve, and that's a pretty decent amount. Sure. So, yeah, but again, you, it, it goes fast. You know, I ran out pretty quickly, and half of that, you know, I'm looking back and I'm like, I, I was doing a bunch of re rolls that you wanted the hit, but it uh, didn't really contribute toward my victory. Exactly. Yeah. So I too need to be better about managing my means of supply. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an important skill to learn, and uh, I, I know, I apologize viewers at home, I always bring everything back to fighting games, but there's a lot of really unique resource management in fighting games, especially uh, in games where there's a health disparity between the two characters on screen. Mm -hmm. In some games like uh, Soul Calibur, mm -hmm. everyone's health is equal, uh, but in a game like Street Fighter, a big slow grappler might have a, a ton more health mm -hmm. than like a zippy little rushdown character. Sure. And you need to look at that health as a resource. It's mistakes you can make trying to get in and do your grappler things that another character might not be able to. Sure. And, and you know, you actually, you watched me in a uh, in a tournament set last I weekend. I did. It was pretty cool. I mean, well, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a, it was a very exciting tournament set. Uh, one of the best I've ever played. So I'm, I'm very happy that that's the one you caught. Uh, <clears throat> and I was playing a big slow grappler, and I, I I took a lot less damage than he did for my mistakes, of which I made plenty, and it really <laughs> factored into the set. So it was it was a nail biter, like just watching like the back and forth, and not necessarily knowing exactly what was going on, but knowing that there was something cool going on. Aaron finally told me who you were, because at first I was like, which one is he? I'm the big boy, usually. If you look at the screen, you're like, oh, that's a big lad. That's, that's probably who I'm playing. I'm a simple man. So Nightmare. No, Astaroth. Oh, there you go. Yep. There you go. Yep. And, and, you, and like you said, there, and there's ways to do this, this resource management, even when we're not talking about, like, making sure we have food for our camp or water to drink near the field. Even if we're not talking about those means of supply, we also have limited resources in the same way when we're on the field. Mm -hmm. We only have so much endurance. And we may have built up that means through working out or through, you know, the acquisite, like through good eating or whatever, right. but we still have that limited amount of endurance. We have a limited amount of people on a team or limbs on a body if you're all by yourself. Absolutely. And, and yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of resources that we may not think about like that. They're still very present there too. Absolutely. It's not, yeah, you're not out of the fight if you're down a leg. Right. Makes your life a heck of a lot harder. Mm -hmm. But I've seen fights won from it. I've lost fights to leg fighters plenty sure. of times. And I mean, like, in a literal sense, this would fall under the whole mass of the military. But because, again, we can't march to the sea and cut off the Confederate supply because we're out there for 10 minutes. And then we go have a drink of water and, and you know, clap our buddies on the back and tell them 
you know, good job or whatever. Right. It's not quite the same, <laughs> which I mean, some of this stuff isn't like a lot of the stuff that we study. It's like, um, it kind of pertains. Yeah. It's not quite one-to-one every right. time. Right. But, but I think that, that resource management is an underutilized issue of reflection yeah. for a lot of players. Uh, when thinking about how, like, because it's very powerful. You can do a lot of things with command points, and that vast pool of decisions to pull from mm-hmm. inherently gives the decision more weight. Sure. Because there's so much specificity there. If you if you had the perfect stratagem, it, it, you know, it can snowball. It can win you a game. Clearing out a unit versus not doing that is the difference between 10 and 15 points. True. And that adds up. It does. And so, like, I... When you when you break it down mathematically, you, there's probably ways to to conceive of a command point as a certain amount of victory points. Yeah. In the sta- in that in that instance, spending a command point guarantees you the five, not guarantees, but gives you better insurance there. Sure. Is 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 two command points fair for five in that mm. case, or should that be reserved for ten? Mm. You know, and look looking at decisions through that lens, I think is a a, a really fascinating part of the game. Let's go deeper with that a little bit. Like what, there's obviously a lot of different stratagems in everybody's books. Which ones are, and of course this is going to be slightly different for every army, but for you for playing Grey Knights, which ones are auto-takes? Are ones that you are almost guaranteed to play throughout the game? Right. I'd say that's a, that's a, that's a tough ask. Um, I mean, uh, teleportation shunt, I would say, is pretty much an auto-play. It costs two command points. But as we were talking about earlier, it's, I'm not just spending those command points to move him across the table. I'm spending them to ensure that it doesn't drop. There's no counter to this like there is to Gate of Infinity. And I I could fail Gate. I could get denied if you had a Psyker on your team. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of junctures for that spell to fail. But spending 2 CP to just guarantee that a guy gets across the board, it's worth a lot in my opinion. Sure. Especially if you're using it right. If you're just doing it willy-nilly with no real plan, then, you know, it may not be as useful. It's not use the, the, worth the resources exactly. that you expend for it. But if you're using it to put somebody, as you were, either right in my face so that I had to deal with them, or popping them back to your tech marine so they could get a little, little a beef little up before off. they came back. Just a little... Mm. That was that was fantastic. That was fantastic use of that resource and making sure that it counted every single time. Thank you very much. Yeah, I th- that tech marine. He, I think he was able to heal twelve damage. Yeah, that game, which is did work very. So that's that's almost a full dread knight yeah. of value in that in that one unit, which is pretty wild to think about. Um. So, yeah, that and you know you can think of him as a resource. Well, there was a, I had to make a decision at a point in the game when I had two very wounded dread knights sitting next to the tech marine. Which one do I heal? Right. Pretty easy call. It was the grandmaster. Who would have thunk? Yeah. They were at the same health, and obviously I'd rather have him healthier. The other dude got shot down with plasma. He just got incinerated, and I cry, I wept for, for my poor poor young Wardlow. He outlived Oswald this game, though, and that's a rarity. Those two are Tweedledee and Tweedledum in my army at this point. I got them both. Yep. Uh, Ulrich always remains, though. He's, he stays alive pretty well. Well, with the, with the one... Um, the relic? The relic that lets you just blip away when you get shot at. Mm-hmm. That's is a really good relic, but I've also tried to use it to my advantage. You have. Knowing that if I position myself in such a way, I can threaten your Grandmaster, but 
when the inevitability, the inevitable comes and you, you blip away, I still have choices. Right. I still have options with my shooting and I'm, I'm trying to use my resources in a good way. Not be shooting from a place where it's like, well, gosh, I, he, he's gone and I've got no other targets. Yeah, absolutely. Using that, uh, in, in the fighting game world, we call that an option select. Mm. And, uh. That is, I, I feel, the most efficient management of resources in that, that I know of in gaming. It's mm. it's ways of, I'm not going to get too into detail here, but performing a single input that the game can read as multiple inputs, mm. depending on the situation. Right. And generally it cho- it picks the most favorable one. Or the, the one that the game will allow to come out mm. is more favorable for you in that situation, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, I know an invincible move comes out here, so I want to do this when I'm getting attacked mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, you can think about it as in chess, too. Like if you when can a get knight yourself... can take the rook or the bishop. Right. And, yeah. or, or like you're t- looking at the queen and the king. Mm-hmm. You're forcing the move because the king has to move. But now I can take a really good piece. Uh, like I, I, I felt like I did there, too. I moved into a position. I threatened your grandmaster, your king. Mm-hmm. You moved your king. And then I went after your queen, which was the other dread knight that right. was in range of me. Right. Um, again, I'm, I'm not mad about my performance. I think I Certainly. did halfway decently. I made some glaring mistakes that need to be corrected. <laughs> we both did, I think, for sure. But, uh, yeah, I, that was a very fun, very interesting game. It was the most, I mean, passive, maybe the wrong word for it. But there was a lot less bloodshed in that game. I think we both had over half of our units on the board at the end. And I mean, we're both being very careful mm-hmm. with it because I know that if I overextend myself and give you opportunities, you will take them. Right. And I think you know the same of me. Absolutely. So both of us are like, mm, mm, <laughs> what's he going to do? Yeah, definitely a bit of a standoff at the end of our board there. I, I find that that often happens with fighters too. Yeah. When you're sitting there and like you know the other person is good at swinging stick and you are, and there's just that kind of like anime moment. Right. Where the wind the rustles moment. and there's like a leaf that goes by and then there's the whooshing and, you know, one person whoosh. And foam erupts from their body. Yeah. Yeah. That would be disturbing. That would be a little unfortunate. <laughs> just a whole camp tent just unfurls. <laughs> terrible. Graphic. Just terrible. But yeah, you, you used all of this. That's that's what I'm driving at, and it was really cool, and I, I've often seen it done on the field as well. And so it's nice to see all of these conditions be put in there to, to make sure that victory happens, because you are going after the win. Like, mm-hmm. most people play to win, but you, like, condition what's going on to win. Klaus would be very proud of you. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, th- I mean, I think he would be of you as well. You... you... What I, one thing that I didn't think you misplay, it's hard to say, uh, because the, the lack of aggression, I think we both agree was, was good uh, and bad. It, it was, yeah, it was a factor, a yeah. big factor. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it, it's really hard to say at the end of the day. Especially since there's so much randomness in it. It's, I mean, it's the same mm-hmm. thing in actual war too. We, we think that rolling dice, you know, is... Maybe not as realistic on a board, but it, it really is. Every combat comes down to individual bullets going back and forth or individual combats that accumulate in the whole. How a battle goes, even if you come in with a good plan. You can come in with a good plan, you can come in with a great force and, and just kind of have things under control when you come in. But once the plan st- hits the enemy, it can no longer be trusted. 
and and then everything's in the air. And so, yeah, I mean, if I had changed X, Y, or Z, it may have helped, but it might not have. You know, we, we look at a lot of battles and we're like, this is the way it had to go. Because, you know, Frederick won this particular way, that was the way to win. Right. Not taking into account the randomness that helped contribute it to that win, and or the fact that that win was achieved not in a vacuum, right. but also with a lot of conditioning coming in, conditioning that we might lack in another setting. Absolutely. Uh, you, were, you were discussing this sort of thing in your last episode mm. uh, with, with, you know, getting... Frederick talking about doing this strategy did not make him great, right? right? Uh, and it, it's it's the timing right. at its heart. It's it's not just that he he did the oblique and it won. It's right. that of all the stratagems before him, he knew that this was the correct one and this was the correct time to do it. Right. Because there there are so many ways to screw up. <laughs> there are so many ways to have something great that could happen but you don't factor in X, Y, or Z. And because of that, the whole thing collapses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But knowing consistently, having that awareness of what's around you and knowing what you're capable of, uh, that's, I think that's a, that's a very hard thing for a lot of folks to, to do. Sure. You, know, you see it a lot of the time in, in martial arts with people, someone just learning boxing. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're afraid of you and they don't know how hard they can hit too. Right. They don't know how, you know, they're just as fast if they gain control of the situation. For sure. Um, I, I sure didn't mm -hmm. when I first started out. Uh, and, you know, someone in Bellegarth, new folks are very hesitant yeah. to throw a shot. They're, they're so, they're, they're nervous. They just don't want to lose. Mm -hmm. And they're not thinking clearly. But having that clarity of thought, learning four or five strikes, mm -hmm. picking the best one, that's a great way to improve as a fighter. That's a great way to be a great fighter, is to always consistently pick the best option. Well, and to know how to throw your shot mm -hmm. is another huge part of that. And I know that's a drawback for a lot of folks, but because like you and me, we're, we're broader of chest and that's where our power comes from. That's how we're built. That's kind of how our body type was born. Right. Other folks have their power positioned lower in the body, you know, in, in like the lower abdomen and or legs. Right. And these folks throw shots very differently than you and I do. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they can't throw them strongly. No. And I had a really good uh, demonstration of this, actually, my last session of Gladiators, because we had a, uh, an interested student who had uh, presented themselves, and they were very timid right. because they'd never done anything like this before, and they were rather small, and they weren't broad of chest, right. you know, like myself or some of the other uh, really talented people in the class. And so they, of course, were, were you know, kind of down on themselves and worried. And I said, no, let's, but they had had previous martial artists experience. Okay. So at the very least they knew where their power was and how to control their body. And I said, okay, don't throw the shot from your arms and shoulder, throw it from your abdomen and your legs. Mm -hmm. and, and they knew what to do and they threw it and pow, plenty of steam, right? plenty of steam. Right. And that just goes to show that that fear is often misplaced. It because is. we can throw a stronger shot than we think we can. You just you just don't know your arsenal. Right. You don't know the shots you have to draw from. The, the thing is, you and I can throw those shots, and I, I throw shots from my hip all the time. Oh, sure. I, I generate my power there, right? But mm -hmm. but there's a there, there there is a difference. Yeah. In the two shots, and it's not that you and I couldn't throw the other one. Just physiologically, we're more be it's, we benefit more from the one way. So we pick the other way. Yeah. And so you're you're selecting the best option to match that situation, mm -hmm. even if the tools are different, just right. like our armies. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, Toto, we, we I 
I just want to keep talking because <laughs> <laughs> I, I like talking. You. But we are out of time. Uh, but again, thank you so much for coming on and for the game before this. This was a lot of fun. Of course, I had a great evening. Thank you so much for hosting, Mark. Right on, right on. Well, for the rest of us, we are going to continue on to the next stage of the French Revolutionary Wars. with our theme this episode for conditioning combat we're going to have the lead up to a, a fairly pivotal battle uh, just kind of happening so I thought this was a really good chance to put some of the things that we saw in the first section and some of the things we discussed with Toto in an actual practical way and see them as they played out here in 1793 so, from our previous episode, you'll remember that Carnot had developed a holding and attack pattern similar to what Dumouriez had, right? They were holding the Pyrenees, the Alps, and the Rhine, and striking north into the Netherlands. The reason this is important, the reason this is a good plan, and why it was repeated, even though you'd think, well, wouldn't they want to do something different? Well, what would they be doing? You know, you don't, you, holding the Alps, protecting from the Alps, that's a good idea. Trying to attack through the Alps? Not that great. Not since Hannibal. Folks could see better at this time. There was, there was more communication between areas. Faster communication between areas. So going over the Alps, not a great idea. The Rhine, large river, served as an excellent barrier and was, it was good, a good defensible position. Same thing with the Pyrenees. Well, not that they were a river, but that they were very defensible. So when you look at the terrain, just the sheer terrain factor, striking north is the option that they have. Unless they would just want to double down on going into Spain. But that, that doesn't really take them in the right direction to really conquer Europe, as it were. So this, this plan, that, that's why the way it was. It's, it's not because it was just a complete coppering of Demarais, but it was a matter of that is the, the logical thing to do. Especially considering, as we had talked about before, the importance of, of the Dutch Republic, the importance of the Netherlands to international shipping and where their colonies were and their control over that entire area with their navy. This was all very important. And whoever owned or who possessed or had them as a vassal state, they were at a, a supreme advantage. It, it, it's hard to think about now because you see the size of the country and you think that used to be one of the most influential, like that, Belgium. They used to be some of the most influential areas in Europe. Yeah, they did. They did. They're still pretty influential, but they, like they, they used to be pivotal to the politics and to the power of this area. So he, he does this well, though, and he's going to have a lot of success over the next 12 months. Spoiler alert. He's going to have a lot of success over the next 12 months. And this is going to end up gaining him the title of organizer of victory, right? Because he brought everything together. He brought these fresh conscripts in, he brought the old army, and he, he kind of made, put this plan in motion, right, conditioned it, and over the next year, he's going to get this title. And this is a good thing for, for Carnot here, because while we're studying all of the military science here and the maneuvering in the field, the terror is beginning to occur. And this is a time of, of it's very bloody. We've all heard about it, the guillotines, right? And it wasn't just, you know, people talk about it simply being the, the rich, the nobility 
who get, you know, taken to the guillotine or to the, to the gallows. But it wasn't just them. Like they were a huge target in the beginning, but as it went through political rivals began to be thrown under the bus, especially rivals from other sects, right? Rivals who are competing with uh, ideology or philosophy or whatever the case may be. Well, they might just be traitors to the Republic too. Oh my good. Oh, oh, and this person that disagreed with me? Oh, traitor to the Republic. So that word, traitor, was getting tossed around a lot. And where it came, death often followed or just, you know, extreme ordeal to prove one's innocence. So it was a very bloody time. It was a really, really bad time to be somebody of high position where any sort of eyes of the Committee of Public Safety <laughs> were upon you. So the fact that he is going to be preserved throughout this conflict because of this title, because of the reputation that he gains during the next 12 months, that's impressive. You know, the dude gets a pass because he was that good. And not a whole lot of other, of other people were afforded that uh, benefit of the doubt. So again, we're, and we're going to see it over the next 12 months. We're going to see this demonstrated. But of course, he wasn't the general in the field. He was the central commander of everything, but at least to this portion, they kept politics out of the military. As you know, we've heard before, all the way back at Sun Tzu, that one of the worst things that a, a politician, that a king or a president or whatever can do is get directly involved in critiquing or in organizing the military strategy. It's not their job. And when they've tried to, it doesn't really end well. Like beforehand, sure. You know, Eisenhower organized the D-Day offensive, but that was before he was president. Hitler tried to lead things, tried to, to tell people what to do when it came to the Eastern Front. Overrode his finest commander, especially his finest tank commander, Guadarrain. Decided he was going to take personal command and dictate what the objectives were. That didn't end well. And it often doesn't. So that was the difference here. Carnot wasn't governing from the field, but he was like the central like commander, organizer for what was happening in the field. So let's take a look at August 1793. The Allied forces are in an excellent position. They have managed to deal out some pretty decent defeats, roll back the French successes, and now they're even on French soil. And if they had continued as a combined, unified effort, who knows what could have been accomplished? Uh, we're not playing the what-if game here. What we do know is that that force was divided. And it was divided because of, you guessed it, politics. And part of this was influenced by the opinion of the home country for, Brit for Britain. They were the ones who advised, and kind of demanded, that the Allied forces be divided. Because when, when you look at the public opinion, Britain had just come out of a vicious series of wars that had lost them many of their colonies and had like really damaged their, not just their military, not just their navy, but also just the purse at home. It's hard to run a country when you've bled all of your money into wars that never actually panned out. So the, the politicians at home, the voices of, of government at home are very much anti anything else, you know, I, I mean, they're involved here. They're involved in the, in this war of the, the coalition, but not happily 
And there's a lot of pressure from back home to adopt and stick to what is called a blue water strategy. And much like it sounds, that is a strategy of using the Navy, of which uh, Britain still had a fairly powerful one. It wasn't what it was, or it had been, you know, but it still was pretty good. And so this, uh, this blue water strategy was popular. And so it, there was a lot of heat being brought down on a fact that we, they were involved in a land war again at all. So the British insist that they divide their forces. And the force that is kind of led by the British, or at least by the Duke of York, uh, who was Prince Frederick, was of British, Hanoverans, German mercenaries, and some Dutch. Right? I'm sorry, I don't mean some Dutch. And the Dutch. And they were going to besiege Dunkirk, actually. And this, this, we hear a lot about Dunkirk. It was very important in World War I. It was very important in uh, several other when you're looking across uh, the battles between Britain and between France, this area was also very important. It was one of the shortest distances between Britain and France, like the, the mainland there. So it's very important. It's a very important little place. Add to that fact that um, it was a nest of privateers, French privateers, and that, that really kind of appealed to these diehard blue water strategists and politicians who were really pushing for this Navy only. Because the Navy operates a lot better if a, a, a group of privateers has been taking out a commission. Even though that doesn't necessarily interfere with military operations, it's just a pain. And for those of us who don't necessarily know what a privateer is, like the definition, a privateer is an armed and officered private vessel that holds a government commission for wartime raiding of enemy merchant vessels. So they're supposed to be going after the supply and after the means of, of living for the opponent. So this is very important. If you take a look at where Britain is and where it depends on getting most of its stuff, most of its food, most of its equipment, you know, Britain itself doesn't have a whole lot in terms of resources, especially considering the way that the population is expanding at this time. So these, these routes of supply, these routes of trade are very important. And privateers mean that their, their already stressed navy now has to protect all sorts of other places because of these privateers striking in other areas. So if they can take out a nest of them, that's great. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the things that we see, like the Caribbean era, the pirates and whatnot, very romanticized era, a lot of them were privateers too, hired by either the Dutch or the English or the Spanish or the French or whomever to raid their opponents. They didn't always raid the opponents. Sometimes went after the wrong people, <laughs> just merchant vessels in general. But that was kind of, and some of them were straight up pirates. Like not all of them were privateers, but a lot of them at least started out as privateers as well. The difference between a privateer and a pirate is that government commission. Let's be honest. There's a government saying this is okay to one particular group. And I, I found this actually pretty interesting as I was doing research into this. Privateering is still legal in a lot of countries. Like, it hasn't actually been officially outlawed. It's not widely practiced anymore. I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense to be practiced. I mean, at the time that we're speaking, you know, a lot of privately owned vessels could have held their own against some of the actual straight Navy vessels, especially when we're talking merchant-to-merchant -merchant ships. But now, you know, trying to be an active privateer in an era of 
aircraft carriers and battleships. Eh, kind of a kind of outdated position, I suppose, for sure. This, so this seems like a, a fairly easy thing. The, the area of Dunkirk is not very well defended. There's maybe 8,000 people there. And the English very much could have taken that position. Dunkirk is also in a position that needed a siege. Uh, the reason also that it was a strategic position is because it was very defensible as well. So that also very much contributed to how the British had to approach this situation. Unfortunately for the British, or for the, the Duke of York, uh, we're talking again about die-hard blue water strategists across the sound there, across the, across the, the water, as it were. And so they're short. The, they, they, they didn't take into account the actual complexity of moving a siege train across that body of water. You wouldn't think it would be, right? Relatively speaking, it is not that far of a distance in this area between Britain and France. Theoretically, it shouldn't be that hard. But there's a reason why the landing at D-Day is so well studied by war colleges all over the world and is so well thought of by military scientists it's because it was an incredibly complicated endeavor in order just moving this force it was a really big force it was very complicated just on its own but when you're moving things across a, a larger body of water it's going to complicate you need to have contingencies in place there needs to be actual planning needs to be actual infrastructure to accomplish this and the British did not supply this to their commander. It took two weeks, two weeks, for the siege train to be moved into position, despite that small space or that small distance. It should have not, and should not have taken that long, but it did. And of course, the French took notice. Hard not to just look out across the water and say, "Hmm, a lot of siege stuff going back and forth out there. Wondered what that could be for." I mean, it's not like the. I mean, the British did have a larger force with them, not by much. When you're attacking a fortified position, it really does pay to come prepared. Of course, when you're preparing to attack a fortified position, it also pays to come prepared, prepared, which they didn't. So the French were given plenty of time to shore up their defenses, to improve their, not only their defenses there, but also they flooded the marshes to the southeast, thereby controlling and constricting the battlefield. They altered the influence of the terrain. Not only did the terrain influence the, the battle that we're going into, the Battle of Hundskolen. I'm going to try to learn how to pronounce that better by next episode. Um, but, you know, they, they actively changed those conditions. I mean, obviously flooded marshland is, is far more difficult to move through than, you know, gr grassy pastures or even just like softer lowlands. So therefore they, they constrict the battlefield. They alter the battlefield and therefore alter the moral forces going into this. It's way harder than trying to control it. Like the, the, you can't really get the, the surround that they wanted to get because of this factor. And this also gives a time for General Houchard to bring up a relief force. He's the one who's been appointed head of this army. And despite all this, you know, the French are still pushed back. They're not, they do not have the numeric advantage that they would need, or, or the numerics at all, to be able to resist the pressure that is coming at them from the Duke of York. And as they are pushed back into Dunkirk itself, for the most part, 
Freytag, who is uh, another one of the commanders. He is, uh, let's see, where is his full name? Heinrich Wilhelm von Freytag. Um, you know, he's one of the Hanoverans who is, who is present. And he is able to set up a classic cordon, something that he has used well in the past as well. Like he's actually got a, a fairly long record of using this to his advantage. And a cordon is a line or a circle of soldiers that simply are there to prevent access to the area. And it's a system that's kind of made to be self-supporting. So if there is a, a pressure to one part of the cordon, then other parts of the cordon then, of course, shift those forces to deal with the pressure down there. It's a very um, fluid form of defense, and it, again, has worked well for him in the past. Houchard, on the other hand, is very <laughs> ill-prepared for this. He, uh, I, I, don't, I don't get the impression that he wanted to be general of this army. I don't get the impression that he, again, was was prepared in any way, especially mentally, for this for this job. Because, you know, remember that people were dying for just mistakes, for, for not doing well in the field, whether or not it was their fault or whether or not it was just pure dumb luck. They're being killed. And he knows. I mean, he's not dumb. <laughs> he's observing. He's got eyes that see. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's worried. He's saying, worried sick. Not to mention that they have uh, politicians there. There are representatives of the Republic who are there pressuring him, reminding him of certain responsibilities. So he's, he's not in a very good headspace, but he's got some, some things really working well for him. And the biggest one, in, in, in my opinion here, is that the Levion Mass had just taken place. 500,000 troops kind of spread out over these armies, but they were now available to move with. And so these are also fresh recruits. Remember the, the recruits from last year, the ones from 1792, they are largely either broken of spirit, diseased, or having been ravaged by disease at some point, deserted, or, or you know, just kind of, and they're still veterans. Of course, they're still veterans, but having this new blood come in, you know, folks who haven't been through that level of deprivation, people who, who maybe their morale is better, coming onto the field, you know, joining, filling the ranks with these veterans, this gives life back to this army, this army that was rather done in there for a minute. And they're able to do well. They advance and they're able to beat back. Like they, they attack this cordon from several different directives, directions, and it, it kind of falls apart because it's not designed to be attacked from several directions. It's designed to support one side or the other as there's pressure. You put pressure everywhere, and it falls apart. And so they, they're able to fight off Raytag. They're able to move into a better position. But because they're disorganized, and because, again, there was a certain level of deprivation still, there wasn't a whole lot to eat in the army, and there was certainly a lack of proper shoes and other clothes, uh, they lost the chance to kind of cut off the enemy. Like they, they absolutely could have dealt a far more devastating blow in this particular case, but they weren't able to because of troop plundering, because there were way too many people who decided, you know what, I would rather just go and get myself a new pair of shoes or heck, just some money. There wasn't a whole lot of discipline. Again, we have fresh recruits who haven't necessarily been disciplined. They don't have the military spirit yet of the, of the force. Houchard's not an idiot, as I said. He's under a lot of pressure He's very stressed out, but he's not stupid. And he knows plainly of the siege plans. It's not hard to miss. 
And so he's, he's seeking to use the threat of battle to drive York away. And that's something we've discussed before. Even the threat of a battle, where, where we have forces that gather in one place, where there is a potential for combat, we need to treat that as an actual combat. And he is here. He's just using the presence and the size of his army, which is considerably larger than his opponents, to just try to apply pressure and make them retreat. That's, that was his original plan going into it. And that would have worked great, in my opinion. You know, just being there in the, in the presence, forcing York back, and then being able to reinforce Dunkirk wouldn't have incurred any losses, even though it's not very dramatic. It's, it's a sure victory. Like, I, I don't know, that seemed like a really good idea. And he thought so as well. However, there's political pressure. You have these representatives who want a big dramatic win. They want to use it as some sort of political spectacle. And they're pushing for this direct attack. How awesome is it when... Uh, political figures get involved in military actions. In this particular case, it's not going to bite them too bad. But of course, we know that it can't really go on for too long. And people who aren't directly related to the combat can't really make decisions for too terribly long. So this is where we come to the end of our story for now. I wanted to talk about these various things that conditioned the combat that we're about to be looking at. And we see here, the, of course, the effect of moral qualities, right? Uh, the, the resurgence of life that came into the French army once those fresh recruits arrived. That whole massive military force, just the size of Houchard's force was something to be reckoned with. That conditioned the combat in and of itself. The angle in which they approached very much conditioned it. The country, as we discussed before, flooding those marshes, changed the shape of the battlefield and made it advantageous towards somebody who could had the, the troops to kind of come from multiple directions. Uh, so that definitely put it in the French. And then the means of supply. Who had the best supplies? You know, you had the supply coming up from Paris, and they were fairly close in terms of a supply train, whereas the British were trying to get theirs across the pond. And as we had discussed before with the siege engines, there wasn't a whole lot of support or infrastructure for moving things across uh, and these factors are absolutely going to play in to how the, the battle we're going to discuss you know, plays out. And next time, we're also going to be talking about the military virtue of an army. I'm really stoked about this. When I was going through and taking my notes, I, was, I just kind of went crazy with that section. And that's when I decided because the note page that I was on was virtually just ink, just straight up ink. It looked like a word bearer's armor piece. I decided it needed to be its, its own episode for sure. I appreciate you guys stopping by today. I appreciate you listening to this uh, particular episode and I am looking forward to talking with you next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>